Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM. And Palestine remembered with Nasser Mashni, Robert Martin, and Yusuf Ahmed Rimawi. I would like to welcome my listeners on the AM dial and those who will join us later on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. And I also would like to say hello to my good friend, uh, Dr. Colin McNaughton, who is in the studio and uh, will read the introduction about uh, our guest for this uh, episode. Miko Peled was born in Jerusalem in 1961. Peled grew up in Motza Ilit, Jerusalem, to a prominent Zayas family. His grandfather, Avraham Katznelson, signed Israel's Declaration of Independence. His father, Matiyahu Peled, fought in the 1948 war and served as a general in the War of 1967. Later, after the Israeli cabinet ignored his investigation of a 1967 alleged Israeli war crime, he became a prominent peace activist and leading proponent of an Israeli dialogue with the PLO. He condemned the Israeli military for seizing the West Bank, Gaza, Sinai and the Golan Heights calling the war a cynical campaign of territorial expansion. He was marginalised and shunned for his activism and called for a two-state solution. Palestinian activist Susan Abulhawa has described Peled's father, who died in 1995, as a man that many of us Palestinians could not figure out whether to love or hate and whom many notable Palestinians nicknamed Abu Salam, father of peace. Miko Peled followed his father's footsteps at first, joining Israeli special forces after high school and earning the Red Beret, but he soon grew to regret his decision. He surrendered his status as soon as he earned it, becoming a medic and finally, disgusted by the 1982 Lebanon invasion, he buried his service pin in the dirt. He then distanced himself from activism until 1997, becoming a sixth degree black belt in karate and moving first to Japan, then to San Diego, California, the United States. For a time, he was involved in activism. One evening in 1983, however, he skipped a Peace Now demonstration in Jerusalem to attend a karate class. And on that evening, a grenade attack by a right-wing extremist killed one of the demonstrators. Peled took this as a sign, according to one interview, and consequently followed the path of karate. This path that took him to Japan and eventually to San Diego, where he settled with his wife and family and worked as a karate instructor. So uh, stay with us, uh, dear listeners, and enjoy the interview with uh, Miko Peled, author of The General's Son. I am very pleased to be joined via Skype uh, with uh, Miko Peled, uh, author of the book 
Uh, the General San Miko, thank you very much for taking the time and being uh, with us uh, today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Miko, uh, before we start uh, with your uh, personal and uh, family journey and uh, transition from Zionism uh, to supporting the human rights of the Palestinians. I want to ask you about the current situation in America. Where is America heading uh, when it comes to the Palestine slash Israel issue in lights of uh, Trump's administration? And we've seen um, uh, his promise to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. So how do you read that? Well, on the issue of the embassy, he's already backing down. I think even he's already realizing this is a tree, one, you know, too tall even for a crazy man like uh, Trump. So he's already, it seems like he's backing away from that. Mm. which is of course a good thing I, they, it would have been a, it would have been catastrophic i think so um, it's a good thing that he's, he's somebody must have told him that this is you know too far and too big of a tree to climb so he's not doing that it mm. seems like um, but in terms of the policy i don't think we're going to see a change what we're seeing is only a change in style we're seeing a change in cosmetics mm. what we had the last 8 years we had the we had terrible policies that gave Israel as much money, as many weapons, and complete diplomatic cover for everything it did. Uh, but it came with the pretty face of Barack Obama and, uh, you know, a law degree from Harvard. So people, you know, it seems pleasant. But in terms of the policy, Obama was, of course, completely supportive of Israel. So I don't think there's going to be a change in policy, but there's a change in the cosmetic, there's a change in the appearance. Uh, Trump is doing it and he seems very happy to do it. Obama did it and he didn't look like he liked it. Hmm. Um, so I think that's the only difference we're going to see. We're going to see a difference in, in, in the appearance but in, and in the way it's done, but not in the actual, in, in terms of the actual uh, uh, policy. I mean, you can't become any more su- supportive of Israel. Israel has done everything it possibly wants. Mm. from the very beginning so and it gets all the money and the weapons it wants I want to remind uh, my listeners uh, that we are talking to uh, Miko Peled uh, an Israeli uh, peace activist uh, who's living in America and uh, this actually drives us to how it started Miko uh, where did you first become involved and why in in basically advocating for the human rights in Palestine well I began um, I began probably uh, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago when I began attending, or I should say my journey, I should say, began um, when I began attending meetings with Palestinians here in the United States. And in my book, in the General Sun, there's a chapter that talks about the beginning of my journey. It's a fantastic and book. The first, what a fantastic book. And the first line in the chapter, I say that my journey into Palestine began in San Diego here in the United States. Mm. So even though I was born and raised in Jerusalem, which is supposedly a mixed city, I never met Arabs, I never met Palestinians, because it's a very racist and it's a very segregated city, so Palestinians and Israelis never meet. So I was here in America, and for the first time I was meeting Palestinians in a normal setting, in somebody's house, sitting in a living room, talking, drinking coffee, you know, that sort of thing, where people just talk to each other. And that was, well, I should say that was my first encounter with the Palestinian narrative, with the stories about 1948, with the stories of the ethnic cleansing and the massacres, where people were telling just their own personal story. They weren't reading out of a book or, or they weren't even pointing fingers. It's not like they were accusing me or anybody else. They were mm. just telling 
their own family's personal story, you know, and it goes from one to the other, one to the other. And that was my first encounter, and that began this journey, which kind of drove me to explore this other place called Palestine, which is actually the same place that I grew up in, which I used to call Israel, and uh, discover the Palestinians and, 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 and eventually come to the point where I am today, where I'm advocating for justice and Palestinian rights in Palestine. Hmm. Um, the journey, like you described, uh, Miko, uh, of course, um, had uh, a personal element where uh, you said that it started uh, 17 years ago, but also there are roots of this journey in your family, your father. You described, um, and in fact, you named the book after uh, the legacy of uh, your late father, uh, the general's son, and you spoke about uh, his journey and why triggered uh, or what triggered uh, the shift uh, from being an Israeli and Zionist to being a, an advocate for peace where uh, Arabs, uh, some Palestinians call uh, called him Abu Salam, uh, the father of peace. So I would really appreciate it if you tell us about uh, the father, your father's legacy and his journey. Uh, sure, my, fa my father was Mati Peled and so he uh, is a young, you know, he was born in Palestine in Haifa in 1923, when he was a teenager, he joined the Jewish militia, the Jewish terrorist organization, the Palmach. Uh, he already in high school trained, you know, went through military training. By 1948, he was an officer, or 1947, he was an officer. He participated in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine of 1948, which we, the Israelis, call the War of Independence. And then he remained in the military after that. Um, in 1956, after the Suez campaign, he was the military governor of Gaza, and that was his first encounter with Palestinians. Mm. And he suddenly noticed that he was the governor, he was the occupying force. And as a young man, he thought he was fighting an occupying force, which was Britain at the time. So suddenly he found himself in this very strange predicament where he was the occupier of a people, and he suddenly, I think it suddenly dawned on him for the first time what was happening what was actually happening in Palestine. And he was very uncomfortable with that position. And that drove him to start studying Arabic. And he became, and uh, eventually, after he retired from the military, he, was, he taught Arabic literature. Um, but he remained in the military. And by 19, in the 1960s, he became a general. He was, one of the, he was a member of the Israeli High Command. He was one of the generals who planned and, and pushed very strongly and executed the War of 1967. Um, and then when the war, immediately when the war was over, I mean, immediately the very first meeting of the Israeli high command, he said, well, now we have an opportunity to make peace with the Palestinians, to engage with the Palestinians who are really the natives of this land. Um, and if we, and even though we want the entire country and we believe that it's all ours and it's all the land of Israel, we must compromise because there's another nation here. And if we do not recognize their rights to self-determination, then we will end up being an occupying power, there will be resistance, there will be terrorism, we will have to fight and use all of our resources to fight this uh, resistance, and that will be the end of the Jewish state. Eventually, it's going, it would become a binational, non-democratic state. Of course, that's exactly what happened over the last 50 years. Mm. But nobody was listening, nobody was interested, because Israel didn't occupy the West Bank for nothing. They occupied the West Bank because they wanted to complete the conquest of Palestine, to complete the conquest of the land of Israel, 
and that's exactly what they call it. They call it finishing the job. Finishing the job. Um, they call it the, taking the West Bank was wow. referred to as finishing the job. Hmm. The job that didn't finish in 1948, because in 1948, Israel decided not to take the West Bank and Gaza. Hmm. Um, and then in 1967, they decided to take it and finish the job of the conquest. They wanted the Jordan River to be the eastern boundary of the state of Israel, of the Jewish state. Um, he retired a year later. He had an academic career. Like I said, he taught uh, Arabic literature. He spoke Arabic very, I mean, he, he knew Arabic very, very well. Uh, to a point where he could teach literature and, and, and so forth and read it fully. Um, and he continued this um, uh, crusade, if you will, to bring uh, forth an Israeli-Palestinian peace. But the, 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 the paradigm was still a Zionist paradigm. In other words, that the Zionist state has legitimacy, that the occupation of 1948 has legitimacy, but the, we need to somehow compromise the Palestinians. And that's really when the two-state solution, as we know today, mm. That's when it was born, you know. Um, and for a few years there, they may, 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 it, there may have been a chance for, for this to happen. But, of course, Israel immediately, immediately as the War of 67 uh, was uh, over, as the conquest was complete, began destroying Palestinian neighborhoods and villages and cities and expelling hundreds of thousands of Palestinians out of the West Bank and building massively for Israeli Jew, for Jews only in the West Bank, which is exactly what Israel did from 1948 up to that point in every other part of Palestine. So in other words, there was nothing different, nothing, nothing unique about what happened in the West Bank. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's it. He passed away uh, in 1995. You know, he, at first he thought Oslo was a good sign, but then he wrote his very last article. He was, was, was uh, titled... A requiem to Oslo, and he said that Israel does not want peace. Rabin did not want peace. The Oslo Accords are not a peace accord. They are a terrible accord that has made, we will make things worse for the Palestinians and only deepen the Israeli control of the land and the resources, which, of course, we know today is true. Did he live um, to see the it. assassination of Rabin? No, he died before the assassination mm. of Rabin. Rabin was at his funeral. Uh, he died in March. Rabin was, was assassinated in, in October. In November. November. Yeah. Well, uh, Miko, we are definitely going to hear more of these reflections on your uh, journey and on your family's journey and also on your views on, uh, on, on Palestine. But after the break, and you get to choose the song. Arabic, of course. Muhammad Asaf. And I don't know the title, but it's uh, Palestine. And he says the letters of Palestine, the Huruf. والله يا حروف الوطن زي العقد في الصدر You're listening to Palestine, remembered on 855 uh, AM, and our guest, uh, Miko Pellet, the author of uh, The General's Son from uh, America via Skype. Uh, thanks again, uh, Miko, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. I wanted to thank Miko again because Miko's book I read a couple of years ago, and it really opened my eyes, and I want more people to read it because I, you know, I never knew what actually happened over there, but to hear it from an Israeli Jew who was on one side 
And then I sort of, after reading it, I realised that they never talked to each other. And that just blew me away. And a little while ago, I actually rung Miko and said, how many Israelis go to the Palestine side, not in their IDF uniform, to find out what's going on? And I think your response was, uh, am I mad for asking? Because it's just something that doesn't happen, isn't it, Miko? No, not at all. It's funny, I was talking today, I was speaking to somebody who is a producer of a very well-known uh, show, talk show here in, uh, in the U.S., who are considering inviting me to speak, you know, and it's a nationally, it's a, it's a big, big deal. And the producer's already spoken to me twice for about an hour on the phone. And she asked me the same question, and she was, she, she was floored by this notion that, you know, when you cross the checkpoints, or even not even a checkpoint, even if you just drive to a, a Palestinian village in the West Bank, they have these massive red signs, and I'm sure you've seen them, yeah. you know, these massive red signs, which tell you that as an Israeli, if you, if you go to the other side, you are going into the Palestinian-controlled territories, which means you are risking your life and you're about to commit a felony. Well, and, they have two, or, and they have like two exclamation marks or three exclamation marks. You know, the, the fear is though, as though any Israelis would want to go anyway. Israelis won't go. They think you're insane. They think I'm insane to actually get on a Palestinian bus and go to Ramallah. You know, the fear and the, and the, and the, and the racism is so deep. But still, you have these massive signs in case somebody was considering going up to Kalandia, one of the checkpoints, um, and they have these massive signs warning you that you're about to either die or, or uh, commit a felony. Well, so no, nobody goes. Because, nobody yeah, goes. because I, the first time I saw that sign, I, I was flabbergasted. And, and I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more educated than the average person. Uh, and then I went through there with a with a reporter, Dan Cohen, and I mean he was oh, yeah, welcomed. Dan. Like I mean, you get welcomed by, you know, the Palestinians over there. And so it's just another form of propaganda, isn't it? Hiding what's really going on. Is that what it's one of the reasons that they put it there? They don't want the Israelis yeah. knowing how pleasant well, the, the Palestinians the, the, are. The, the 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 biggest fear is of any racist society is that people when one when one side discover that the people on the other side are humans. That's yeah. their biggest fear. And yeah, so in order to prevent that, they do whatever they can. They, they instill fear, they, 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 they teach lies, they, they promote racism. You know, this is, this is how racist societies survive. Now, violence and fear, Miko, I'm and gonna, that's exactly what they're doing there. Miko, I'm going to um, read a statement, uh, and you tell me how, uh, if you agree or dis you disagree with that, and you can also comment on it. Uh, Israel, and the statement goes like this, Israel cannot live without uh, an enemy, even an imaginary enemy. In the 50s, it was uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser, and then came PLO, and then came Saddam Hussein, and then came... Uh, maybe Hamas. Uh, so, so, so a fear-driven society with an enemy is uh, essential for an Israeli society. Do you agree with that? Yes, it's one of the it's one of the pillars of the state of Israel. It's one of the it's one of the founding uh, founding uh, pillars, you know, of of the Jewish state, which is that it will always be in con in, in conflict. It was or it would always be yeah. the the, the, the best armed, the biggest bully, uh, the most frightening, uh, the most frightening state, the, the, the most brutal army in the neighborhood. This was a decision that was, was made consciously in the very beginning by, by the first Israeli government, that this is how it's going to be. And when they didn't have a war, they created a war. In other words, as soon as 1948 was done, which of course Israel initiated, the ethnic cleansing, 
uh, was done and the conquest of most of Palestine was completed, they were waiting, they wanted the second war with, with, with Egypt and they couldn't wait for, to start the second war with Egypt. It was internal Israeli politics that prevented the, the Sinai campaign, the attack against Egypt, from happening sooner. And eventually, the sooner than 1956, and they and they engaged in the Sinai campaign. And then you're right. And then it was the Palestinians in Gaza. And then mm. it was again 1967. And then again it was the Palestinians in Gaza. And then it was Lebanon. They always have to be engaged in for, in, in war. The that is the only justification. That yeah. is the only environment in which they can live. So, so moving m- moving from that, Miko, tell us about BDS. What do we do, and, and how is it going? Is it uh, gaining momentum, and, and what can fellow humans do about it? BDS is the call that came from Palestinian civil society, uh, the largest uh, the largest coalition of of individuals and organizations ever to come together with a single call asking the world to follow the, the, the South their request yep. and follow the example of, of South Africa by imposing boycotts, divestment and sanctions on the state of Israel and businesses and companies that do business with Israel and profit from uh, the occupation of Palestine. Now, they've had several very successful campaigns. There's one going on right now against uh, HP, against Hewlett Packard, because they provide the Israeli military with, with technology. Um, they had an excellent campaign against G4S that pulled out is pulling out of of, of uh, working with um, with the state of Israel. They had a great, excellent one against Veolia that built the light rail uh, in Jerusalem. Mm. It's a very easy campaign. It's a very easy thing to do. First of all, it it comes from the Palestinians. In other words, it's giving all of us who are on the outside, uh, you know, people of conscience who want to contribute a way to contribute. In other words, just follow their call. You know, that's all we yeah. have to do. Now, it can start by when you go to the store and if a product said made in Israel, you put it down. That's already, you're already resisting. You're already, this is already, it's the easiest thing in the world. Or you can go to the store manager and say, you know what? You shouldn't be carrying products from Israel because there's a call for BDS. The concept uh, of and, boycott. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's the right thing to do and it's doing very well. The concept of boycott in the Palestinian resistance is actually as old as uh, the 20s where uh, the Palestinian civil society boycotted the uh, British mandate. And in fact, even the 36th uh, Grand Revolution, uh, when uh, the uh, Mawtini lyrics were written by Ibrahim Tuqan, it was actually at the peak of uh, boycotting uh, the British mandate and protesting uh, peacefully. And then, of course, the boycott issue uh, gained uh, momentum uh, from other political parties historically and uh, also it was endorsed by the Arab League Oh, and became, although uh, dysfunctional in the 90s, uh, but it was actually working for, from, from, uh, from, from, from different areas. And to see the civil society in Palestine uh, regathering their momentum and calling the international community to, do, to, to, to come on board, like you said, Miko, uh, as, as a way of uh, joining the Palestinian cause and doing something about it, is actually uh, an extension of an old struggle. Well, and it works. Yes. I mean, it's the, the normal mum and the dad can participate in this. They don't have to be huge activists. Yeah. They can just join it and, you know, you start talking to other people. I think it's fantastic. What, what's going on uh, in America about it, though? You've got the New York mayor saying that he wants to charge businesses that, uh, that join the boycott movement. I mean, is that getting momentum? They want to boycott the boycotters. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, you know, the thing is this: here in the U.S., there's been a very, uh, very strong campaign uh, where state by state they pass anti-BDS legislation. So in New York, for the state of New York, I think Governor Cuomo signed the executive order uh, maybe six months ago, eight months yeah. ago, or something like that. Since then, only I myself have been invited to speak in New York about five times. It's energizing the base. It's energizing activists who not don't not, not even people who care about Palestine, people who care about about Free speech. Uh, freedom of speech, of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the First Amendment here in the United States. It is energizing people, and I was invited to speak on a college campus, which is state-funded, and asked to speak about BDS. Wow. Um, you know, so in other words, it's, I think these things are, are ludicrous because there's not a single activist who wouldn't be glad to be, you know, to violate these laws. There are real consequences, though, because, for example, in the state of New York, uh, Basin Tamimi from uh, Nabi Saleh was there and spoke, um, and he spoke at a school. Somebody took him to speak at a third grade, you know, an elementary school. One of the activist children was, was in school. And that school was notified that the state was denying it $20,000 in state funding. Well, punishing the school. they had the Palestinians speak, and I, he probably didn't even speak about BDS. I know Basin, he, you know, I don't think he even spoke about BDS. He just told him the story of Palestine. That school... Was, was punished, penalized. Twenty thousand dollars is a lot of money for a, you know for That's a school ludicrous. in a small town. And the principal, the principal's tenure was denied. That's just ludicrous. But it shows the so power. So there are real consequences to this, which of course you know in, in 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 any struggle we have real consequences. But it's only energizing people. I mean, it's getting. I spoke there a few. I don't know a couple of months after Bassem was there. Hmm. Uh, I spoke at a public uh, you know uh, you know community center. They got. I don't know how many hundreds of emails and letters asking them to cancel the event, and they didn't. And the place was full. That's fantastic. So it's energizing really people to, to, to act and, and become even more fierce. Now, uh, Miko, we're heading towards the end of the interview, and we have so much to talk to you about. And I'm, I'm really hoping that in future uh, we'll be able to, uh, to even speak to you and hear your views and reflections on other issues. But in the coming or in the remaining uh, three minutes, I want to pass a question to you. Uh, from a friend of mine who is uh, an Israeli peace activist living in Melbourne, Sivan Barak, uh, who, has, who has actually been supporting the human rights of the Palestinians and human rights in general. And her question to you is, what are your thoughts of having uh, two nations in one homeland in time of polarization and fear? Is this too dreamy uh, or is this something we should really believe in? We already have two nations living in one state. There is one state in all of Palestine. Israel established a single state on all of Palestine. As soon as Israel took the West Bank, that's it. It became one state over all of Palestine. But it's a state that is a racist state. It's a state that gives exclusive rights to Jewish people at the expense of Palestinians. It's a racist apartheid regime. The laws that govern the lives of people like myself, Israeli Jews, are completely different than the laws that govern the lives of Palestinians. And the laws of the government of the lives of Palestinians are different depending on where the Palestinians live within the country. If they are within the 1948 boundaries, they have certain laws. If they're in Jerusalem, they have different laws. If they're in the West Bank, depending on if they're in area A, B, or C, they have different laws. It's a completely apartheid state, but it is one state, and two nations live there. So the transition 
or transformation of this apartheid state into a democracy is exactly what the resistance is about, is exactly why we should support BDS. It is exactly the goal that we need to be fighting for, and that is the banner behind which we need to all stand. We need to see it as a very realistic goal. I believe it's going to happen much sooner than most people think. Just like in South Africa, a white racist uh, president stood up and released Mandela, Nelson Mandela and, 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 and brought apartheid down because he had no choice, BDS will force Israel to come to, to, come to its knees and end the Zionist occupation of Palestine and establish a, a, a real democracy where Israelis and Palestinians living under the same law will be able to live together and Palestinians will be able to return to their land and to their home. The right of return will be materialized and we can start solving all the problems that, that face uh, Palestine today. But the first step is establishing a democracy all over Palestine. Miko Pellet from uh, the United States, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with us uh, today. And we really look forward to speaking to you in future about uh, Palestine. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.